Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. We are talking with Doctor and Baroness Dambisa Moya, who is also member of UK's House of Lords. She is a principal of. Versaca Investments, a family office focused on growth investing. She's an expert in capital allocation, risk, and ESG matters. She's the author of many best-selling books on the global macro and geopolitics. Welcome, Dambisa, and thank you for coming. Tell us a little bit of your day-to-day work and、uh, Versaca Investments. Sure. Well, thank you so much for hosting me. I'm delighted to participate.、Um, just in terms of my background, I spent ten years at Goldman Sachs,、um, and then subsequently,、um, in the last ten years, I've spent、uh, quite a considerable amount of time serving on boards of large global、uh, and complex corporations, including Barclays Bank,、uh, the international bank. And so, my background has really been. About macroeconomics, my PhD is in economics,、um, but at the same time, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the investment implications of a lot of global themes.、Um, Versica is a family office.、Um, we are mainly、uh, focused in、uh, two regions: the United States、uh, as well as China.、Um, however, we do、uh, inadvertently end up with、um, some exposures, small exposures. Um, to Europe and、um, every now and then to uh, uh, to uh, the emerging markets, but really it's dominated by、uh, China and the United States.、Um, our focus、um, really is, has been in technology.、Um, but we are looking for、um, mainly equity、uh, investments is where we focus. So we don't really like、uh, distressed or, or fixed income,、uh, even though there's some good returns to be had there now. Um, and we have、uh, certainly in the places like China, which I'm sure we'll talk about, we have、um, a lot of exposure in the private sector,、uh, so private equity side,、uh, as well as some venture. That's very interesting. I think、uh, a, there are not many、uh, shops that you know focus、uh, on this too. But I expect you know more of、uh, more of this. And there's also talk about uh, sometimes. Um, You know, people didn't want to invest in China directly, so they're looking for、uh, equity that's co- correlated. For example, the European luxury,、um, China, you know, the brands like、uh, LV—they've been highly uh, their um, you know equity has been highly correlated with China's growth or、um, Australia. Uh, Except you know recently, so I think、uh, a lot of geopolitics. We will get your insights、uh, from you.、Um, just you know, two or three days ago, European Central Bank President、uh, Lagarde gave a talk about the fragmentation of global economy, and she mentioned that supply chain disruptions will lead to、um, higher intrinsic inflation and lower growth. Uh, she also suggested、uh, fiscal policy and government actions are needed. Uh, more than monetary policy in solving supply chain issues, do you see the future、um, as a higher than average inflation and lower than average growth as a regime、um, and also as an asset allocator? How are you changing or not changing your portfolio from this assessment? So great questions.、Um, I think I'm going to parcel them out because there's a lot in there.、Um, so let's start with the macro view. 
Um, you've may- mentioned two things. You've asked me about inflation. Is it going to be sticky, basically at higher uh, higher levels? And secondarily, um, are we now in a low growth environment? So let me start with growth, because I think for me, that's really critically important. Um, and what's really important for people to understand, and I think many people do, is that even before the global pandemic in 2020, people were already believe, um, believing and worrying that global growth was on a downward decline structurally. Um, by that, I mean international agencies like the IMF and the World Bank, the U.S. Congre- Congressional Budget Office, many economists and policymakers were already saying that we were in a period of low and slow growth. By that, I mean it was going to be less than 3% per year, which is what you need in order to double per capita incomes in one generation, which is 25 years. So we were already worried about that in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008 and even before the pandemic hit. Um, This is an important story because essentially what the pandemic did was to accelerate some of the bigger worries um, that were already weighing down on the global economy. We were already worried about debt to GDP ratios. Those have only been exacerbated from the pandemic. We were already worried about technology and the risk of a jobless underclass. Again, that's something that's being accelerated now with the advent of AI. Um, Issues like demographic shifts, you know that India is now larger than China in terms of the population, Um, but in terms of per capita incomes, China is about 10 times larger. It's about 12,000 per capita versus, by some estimates, versus India at 1,200. So the population of India is getting bigger, um, but it's still poorer, much poorer than, than China. So all these consequences were problematic at the time Um, before the pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, it's gotten even worse. Now, why this is also important is that you and I are speaking, um, you know, just uh, about uh, a week after the IMF and World Bank spring bank meetings, where they have reiterated that they believe that we're in for a 10-year downward draft uh, of economic growth. So the structural issues around growth remain, um, and they have even been further weighed down by the debt-to-GDP issues, technology, demographics, inequality, uh, and many other things that I wrote about, wrote about in my, my book, Edge of Chaos, in 2018. Um, so let's, let me leave growth to one side. Um, I, you know, maybe just one last point is that in order to drive growth, we know that there's sort of three key drivers, capital, labor, and productivity. And both in developed and developing countries, we are seeing a lot of challenge um, on the capital side, massive debt and deficits. On the labor side, both the quality and the quantity of labor force is being challenged. There are lots of shortages in the workforce, notwithstanding layoffs that we're seeing. Um, But we're also seeing a lot of disorderly migration. So there's a lot of issues going on um, with regards to employment. And then, of course, uh, with a total factor productivity, which explains a big chunk of why one country grows and another one doesn't, we have seen that decline um, and be very low, much lower than we would expect for many uh, developed countries as well as developing. So that's the growth picture, continuing to be very challenged um, with a lot of the issues in capital labor and productivity. The second issue that we need to talk about is around inflation. 
Um, just to be absolutely clear, my fundamental view is that um, we are not going to uh, very easily get to the 2% uh, targets that uh, we, we would that the Fed, for example, would like to see, or even the ECB when Christine Lagarde makes these sorts of points. Um, I think this is really an important piece because I actually attended Jackson Hole last uh, last August, and Federal Reserve um, Powell, uh, Chairman Powell was very clear about the difficulty in taming inflation. Um, it's it's you know it requires a long, uh, dedicated efforts to raise rates, um, not only the size of the, of the uh, rate hikes, but also the frequency was going to continue to be a serious problem. Um, and we know that. We've seen what has happened um, in the last few months where interest rates have continued to go up. And Chairman Powell, notwithstanding Silicon Valley Bank, has continued to raise rates into this environment. So I strongly believe, um, and if you go back to the 1970s, um, up until Volcker, we know that it's very hard to tame inflation. You would have seen, um, even though there have been some improvements in the U.S. numbers, you would have seen the European numbers continue to be quite challenged. Um, in the U.K., still around 10%. If you look at food in Germany and in the U.K. and other places, it's still very, very high. Um, and that is partly uh, because of supply chain constraints that we're still working through, but also the inflationary pressures that have come from uh, from the war in in Ukraine. So, um, so that's basically my worldview on those two issues. Um, let me conclude by just uh, answering your last point, which is what what does that mean for uh, for portfolio management? Um, and I hinted at this in my opening remarks. Um, you know, for equity lovers like myself, it does become very challenged with the rates uh, hikes. Um, and, and, you know, obviously the markets, I think, have performed uh, are much higher than you might expect with the rate hikes that we've seen. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of temptation now to move into uh, distressed, but also into just pure fixed income because the rates uh, that you can generate from laddering or just investing, uh, you know, five and a quarter, uh, you know, sometimes even higher are things that make it much more attractive, it would seem, to invest um, and without taking the risks of, of investing in equities. So now that we are, I think uh, um, most people are coming to the um, realization that deglobalization will be uh, and slower growth will be, um, uh, you know, the at least for the next 10 years, uh, decade, uh, what, what regions do you think will be hurt the most um, and what regions will be, you know, helped the most? Uh, I, I know there's some understanding that U.S. and China are the biggest benefactors of uh, globalization, but does does it mean that in the deglobalization they will be hurt the most? Um, I, I just want to get, you know, your view on, on these issues. Sure. So that's, it's a wonderful question because... If you had asked me this question about six months ago, um, I would have still been um, worried about the emerging markets. Remember that 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets. Um, but, you know, there was still, the, I would have still made the argument that even in a deglobalized world, many emerging markets across South America, Africa, Asia were still heavily aligned to China. Um, in, in terms of China being the biggest trading partner, foreign direct investor and lender. Um, and so even though there were there, there continued to be um, a lot of evidence uh, around deglobalization, I wouldn't have been so worried 
uh, about uh, emerging markets about six months ago. I'm now much more worried about emerging markets because it's becoming ever more clear that um, the consequence of AI, um, not just in terms of possible higher productivity, which could be good for everyone around the world, um, but lower employment, um, I, you know, the disruption in the labor market could, could disproportionately hurt regions in the emerging world where they don't have the skills to be able to leapfrog and take advantage of, uh, of the disruption emerging from, from, from AI. Um, so put another way, I am generally short emerging markets um, and, and also quite short Europe, um, notwithstanding the point that you made, that some people try to do backdoor China um, by doing a European luxury or, or that sort of trade. Um, I still believe that in terms of upside um, and really where the world is going, um, the U.S. and China uh, are, are both regions that I find uh, particularly interesting. Now, that becomes also complicated because, as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, fissures between the U.S. and China. How should we be thinking about the risks that there could be uh, restrictions on investing in China or even on the other side, you know, that the U.S. could stand up and say you're not allowed to invest in China anymore. They could ban TikTok. There's a whole lot of things that are very aggressive in the last 24 hours. There are discussions um, of the United States uh, telling South Korea not to sell micron chips to China. So there's a lot of anti-China sentiment coming from the U.S., but also there's a risk that China, with, with her own agenda, um, might decide um, to, to shut down capital. Um, you know, we're watching what's going on in Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. So even though I, I may love um, the, the opportunities for growth, um, for capitalizing on AI and technology and quantum computing and all that stuff and where the world is going, um, you know, both the U.S. and China seem like formidable competitors and therefore attractive from an investment perspective. Um, I am... Um, forced to pause because of the uh, the issues that I just outlined, that there are some serious risks that perhaps were not there uh, a number of years ago. And again, this is notwithstanding the fact that there's a lot of symbiosis. You see the trade numbers between China and the US. You know that China uh, is the largest or maybe second largest foreign lender to the US government. So there's a lot of symbiosis that would have to be unwound, but notwithstanding that, there's certainly a lot of pressure, um, both from the U.S. and China, um, that suggests that uh, you might have to pick one or the other. Thank you. Um, I know that you mentioned in the beginning that uh, your um, strategy at Vesaka is, um, you know, focusing the most on China and U.S., uh, but you uh, also probably spend significant time in Europe uh, and, you know, is has front seat view there. Um, what's Europe's uh, strengths and weakness in the coming um, new, you know, geogra ge geopolitical environment? Uh, European equity has has seen, you know, in significantly lower valuation together with Japanese uh, equity as well. Um, uh, obviously, if if it's not something, you know, uh, 
you you haven't uh you know dabbed into it uh but like if if from this macro environment uh, on on that do you, do you see uh, opportunity for European and Japanese equity which you know Warren Buffet has been quite in the news. Yes, I actually went and ran and looked at the PEs of all those five companies that Warren Buffett bought in Japan. He's, he's, exp- he's increased his exposure. Um, very interesting uh, to see what he's doing there. I think Japan. Um, I would say in the last couple of years, there's a lot more interest. I mean, the people that we speak to um, who are on the venture side and the private equity side are, are much more excited about Japan. Uh, I haven't quite got there yet, um, but I'm following it closely. Europe is a harder sell for me, um, partly because of the growth story. It's a very hard growth narrative. Um, but I think the other aspect of Europe that maybe people don't really um, uh, understand to the nth degree is that, um, you know, when, when dealing with systemic risks like climate, for example, let me give that as an example, the European environment tends to be very focused on risk mitigation and rule-based types of, uh, of approaches to address something like that. In the U.S., the focus tends to be much more about investing. Um, so just to give you a, a, a specific, and, and sorry, investing, but also very principles-based. So let me give you an example. If I'm in a dinner party in, uh, in London talking to investors about the green economy or climate change, they're almost always going to talk about scope one, two, and three. How should we mitigate for, um, for, uh, for uh, uh, climate change? What sort of penalties should they be? They're very much about mitigating that risk, which is important, but it's not going to grow the economy, I don't believe. Um, if I have the same dinner in the U.S., in New York, they're all talking about, should I invest in hydrogen? Should I invest in EV? What are the returns I'm going to get from green hydrogen versus blue hydrogen? Or if I invest in uh, carbon capture? So I think that they understand that there's some mitigation that needs to happen, but they're much more driven by cost of capital is here. How am I going to clear that cost of capital and generate real returns above the cost of capital? And that, I think, is a big difference between Europe and the U.S. that 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 feeds into the the performance of the market. Yeah, on that, I might be able to add some perspective from China's side as well. And actually, I've only lived in the U.S. and China, so I'm biased a hundred percent. But I think um, China and the U.S. in many ways is the most similar country um, because. Uh, Every time there's an issue, like something needs to be solved, I think uh, people in the U.S. and you know, I I see this in my own kids that you know the it's always let's try to find some way, you know, technologically, uh, uh, new inventions and and similar in China too because China has really last two hundred years, um, you know, believe it or not, many Chinese uh, feel that technology. Um, you know the 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 lack of investment in technology is what caused so much you know trouble for China as a country. So also in China, if you see a problem, people's first response is always let's invest and try to solve it. So in that is extremely. Uh, well, what what about um uh, emerging market but exclude China? And the reason I'm asking is that in the last one or two years, 
we've launched our Emerging Market Exclude China Index, uh, mostly because clients are asking for it. You know, they want to, China is close to 30% of Emerging Market Index. So, you know, some clients want to make their own China uh, waiting instead of just a base. So what, what's your view um, in, in, that, uh, in that risk regard? Well, I think, um, as I intimated earlier, to me, China is very different um, in terms of its prowess, um, its technological, military and economic uh, competitor is the United States now. And so perhaps just at a a micro level, uh, lumping it in with, you know, South American countries or African countries or, uh, you know, Middle East, GCC or the other Asian countries does seem a little bit dated um, I think the new updates should reflect if you want to do emerging markets, then China is probably not in that group. Um, personally, uh, emerging markets, I generally find for a mano a mano risk reward, sort of sharp ratio, the amount of risk I'm taking and the reward that I'm generating, it's becoming a much harder uh, proposition. Um, and, you know, it's very interesting because I'm often find myself in meetings where people say, oh, gosh, you know, somebody in country X has started a really great business uh, and the business is making all this money. Um, but we're not using the right the, the same uh, metrics to to assess whether um, this business is actually viable or actually generating competitive returns. So if I looked at that business and I started to think about multiples like PEs or you know operational excellence types of metrics it very quickly does not look like a viable business and so it may be making money in the local context but when i start to think about the opportunity cost of where i can take my marginal dollar and invest it somewhere else in the world in china in the united states um it's just a harder propos- it's a hard proposition i think it's only going to get harder um, as I said, uh, with things like AI, which I think are going to make it much harder for emerging markets to converge. Um, I, I should just make the following point. If you go back in history, in the 1940s and 50s, the world benefited a lot um, in terms of economic convergence because women came into the workforce. That was around World War II. And then China joining WTO was another burst, uh, another catalyst for economic growth, because you brought in this large population into the world economy. Um, These two opportunities as examples were really helpful in helping countries to leapfrog. You don't have to build another telephone line. Let's leapfrog into mobile phones. And that was possible. I think it's going to be much harder to leapfrog for emerging markets into an AI world um, that, excuse me, that seems to be coming now. And that's where my worries emerge about how do you de- deliver growth in this much harder, much more technical uh, world. That That's very interesting. I think uh, there's a, a lot of talk about India as well. And uh, full disclosure, you know, we do have uh, China index. We also have India index uh, in our um, pro- strategy lineup. Um, so what what's... Uh, well, I know that um, India is probably some, you know, pe- people is, at least in the, for me, um, has been more questions asking about India. Uh, for people who who looking at India, like from, from your background, what are the things um, that people, you know, should or should not pay attention to India as it, it also try to um, 
emerge, you know, from 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 the from the in the world stage, uh, economically and and politically. So I'm going to say something which is very not politically correct. Um, <laughs> he said it to me, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is a very very sophisticated investor who's been investing for about fifty years, and uh, he said to me. India stands for I'm never doing it again. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's fun. I laughed um, because I thought it was such a cheeky thing to say. But in my own experience, having served on boards of large global organizations for the past 15 years um, in different sectors, mining, banking, energy, consumer goods, I can tell you that None of the businesses, none of the sectors that I have been involved in have ever made any money in India. Um, and to me, that means that India is a very high hurdle. I'm not saying others haven't made money. I don't know other people's portfolios, but I can speak to my own personal experience. It's extremely difficult. I think there's a lot of red tape. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying anything that people haven't said before. Um, no, 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 yeah, but, I, I totally. Um, yeah. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, I'm probably an eternal optimist. In a in a way, is that I think this geopolitical competition might be something impetus for us to to be honest with ourselves. Like, for example, um, you know. Uh, naturally, everybody try to defend the countries that you love, right? Whether you're born and then you're living, but also this geopolitical competition probably could make um Chinese and make Americans, make Indians or people who love these countries to actually look inward a little bit. That uh, there are a lot of things happening in these countries, um, to be able to continue grow and compete in this environment. Some of the things it's better to 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 admit and say, hey, you know, we should change. You know, like for example, like in China, I I'm sure um, since I'm originally from China, so it's okay for me to criticize China and the U.S. Hopefully, um, is that you know in China it's it's hard to do innovation when when there's uh, much less um, freedom of speech. And um, also in the U.S., when when people pay, you know, political size, anything, anything happening in the world that distracts you from making investment in making things better. Right. And I think for India, and this is not a criticism for India, but I think uh, if you compare China to India, China used to be a place where red tape I mean, it's extreme. You know, you really need um, you know, to know somebody to get anything done. But uh, last thirty years, um, China realized that was a big problem, and then changed uh, many of the business practices. Um, so I think hopefully in India, um, you know, they they also realize that you know when people um, you know make an analysis of India, it's not a judgment on, on India. In some way, you know, people like us. We we have to be um, we have to be the least uh, politically you know you know we, we have to be the least uh, uh, in terms of you know uh, to be those those kind of because we have to be honest with our own money right like so. Well, I think the other, hopefully with India, they, hopefully they do take these messages on board and say, wait a minute, people who are potential investors in the country are worried about bureaucracy, a lack of infrastructure, uh, red tape, et cetera. And so maybe they do take those 
as cues to make the economy better, to make it much more attractive. And you know, to China is your example, uh, I think is a good one. So you know, I'm, I'm also eternally optimistic, but I'm also led by the numbers, the fact that the numbers don't lie. Um, and I can only go by my own experience. These are businesses that tried to make an investment in this country and tried to make to generate returns and was not able to do that. That's great. Um, I have a, a question is that um, we are a full ETF shop and recently, whether in equity or fixed income in alternative investments, um, there's a significant tendency uh, moving away from mutual funds into uh, ETFs. Uh, what kind of um, financial instruments uh, is a Vesicar um, investment using uh, to manage you know, your China or US or other alternative portfolios? Uh, obviously, private equity, there's still very, very um, few uh, ETFs for those. But what kind of uh, like a financial instruments do you generally use to manage your portfolio? I would think of us as more as asset allocators than uh, portfolio managers. So we we asset, we allocate to different um, asset class asset classes, asset themes, um, private equity, equities, uh, venture capital, etc. And we don't really dictate how they hedge, how those managers hedge. We do a lot more work on the front end, thinking about who are the managers, um, are we correlated? We don't want to have 50 managers and they're all invested in the same thing. So thinking about correlations and 13F strategies, et cetera. But we don't really um, go into the details of how the, the, the minutiae of, of how they're hedging and how they're thinking about ETFs. Although, you know, sitting on boards, I, I'm very much, uh, you know, aware of those moves. I mean, when I was on the board of Barrick Gold, um, there were a lot of people who were taking money out of the, the gold equities uh, like a Barrick or a Newmont and putting money into the gold ETF. So those trends have, have continued um, in, many, in many places, but um, we don't have those sort of specific uh, types of, uh, of indices that we use. This is great. Uh, this has been great conversation, and you know we uh, we're very interested. For our listeners who are interested uh, at your writings or Versica investment, where should they go and find them? Um, just on my website, dambisamoyo.com is my website, and that's where all my information is. Thank you. And for our listeners, you can find us across different platforms for the podcast. And the easiest way is also go to our wisdomtree.com. The podcast is also available there. Um, I'm also on Twitter now, um, even though it's a, it's really a challenge for someone uh, with two kids. But, um, thank you for listening. And then we look forward to talk to, uh, Dr. Um, Moya again. And thank you, Dambisa, for coming to talk to us. Uh, I think the geopolitics risk and how uh, asset allocators are um, responding to it will be continue to be a very interesting question in the next years. So uh, hopefully to get you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too.